so much of what it is we do in, in mainstream schooling is fundamentally about measuring productivity. Not enough of it is about measuring significance. If we were to embrace that type of pedagogic encounter, maybe we would stop measuring the things that really don't define an individual in a holistic way. It only measures a moment in time or an element of that person. How can we continue to challenge a system in a world that now has evolved and keeps evolving and challenge a system to continue to be fluid and adaptive. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Adriano De Prato. Adriano will be well known to many of you with his extensive contributions on LinkedIn, and he is also the co-host of the Game Changers Podcast. Adriano began his professional life uh, initially in advertising before moving into education. He served as deputy principal for many years, the past two years, he is the founding partner of School for Tomorrow, which is a globally recognized educational network supporting students, teachers, and school leaders to thrive in a new world environment. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adriano. He's got a lot to say about the interdependence of all beings, moving towards new relationships uh, in terms of school, of course, but also the community, how that impacts learning, and some of the possibilities that we have in terms of coming together, uh, as well as having our own journeys, our own essences, be at the forefront of everything we do. Please check out our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design. We've got uh, some articles there, some resources, and uh, of course, podcasts. And in the meantime, I hope to get your feedback and I leave space for my conversation with Adriano. Hi, Adriano. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been following you uh, since, uh, gosh, since I got on LinkedIn, I think. So we are passive cross, but we haven't necessarily met um, in this context. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to open it up to you and ask you, um, who are you? What are your passions? And how do you try to make a difference? Well, first of all, Ben, um, thank you very much for the invitation. You're the, the first conversation I'm having with uh, anyone in 2022. So that's really exciting for me too. Uh, and uh, we're in different parts of the world and, and uh, we've had different experiences. So uh, it'd be great to be having this kind of conversation. Um, who am I? Well, I'll answer it maybe uh, um, uh, kind of this way. Uh, I'm, I'm a person who's been forever curious. <laughs> That's who I think I am. And uh, that has led me into different paths in education across 28 years now. Uh, I was uh, an educator and a, and a deputy head in a number of Catholic and independent schools here in Melbourne um, for many, many years. And uh, at the end of 2019, I, I decided to, um, well, I decided to have a break, really. I wanted to go on a sabbatical. And uh, while I was sitting at my computer looking up accommodation in Sicily for a month, I got a phone call from Dr. Phil Cummins, uh, who said, what are you doing, Adriano? And I said, uh, well, I'm just looking up accommodation to go on a, on a, on a on a break for a couple of months. And he said, well, do you want to start a podcast? And uh, well, we did called Game Changers. And uh, that's just taken off exponentially. And from that was born uh, a company called A School for Tomorrow. And our focus is uh, now become a global kind of network of teachers, students, school leaders, uh, looking at ways in which we can continue to transform learning and schooling for this new world environment that we find ourselves in. Um, with a clear understanding that we, we think that everyone's on their own unique and personal journey. Uh, and uh, 
And we're all kind of seeking understanding, meaning, wisdom and knowledge, all those type of things that, that we continue to kind of crave purpose, acceptance and love in this, in this new world. Um, the second part of your question was around what are my passions and about making a difference. So uh, I reflected upon that because you forwarded that to me in advance and I've been reflecting upon what that looks like and, and I kind of framed it in why I do what I do. And for me, it's always been two simple drivers. The first is self-actualization. You know, um, often our best actions are deeply rooted in, in love done for others. However, I believe we are best positioned to love someone else when we've worked resolutely to kind of forge a new horizon for ourselves. You know, my evolution as an educator, as a man has enabled me, I believe, to, to develop relationship with self, with God, with place and the other to flourish even more. But the second driver is for the other. Um, and I suppose that this is the part about making the difference, right? Uh, this is about being an effective educator who can leave a legacy uh, and, a kind of and have a tremendous influence on the life of the other. And we know that that's what educators can do really successfully. Um, I'll let others judge whether I've done that well or not. Uh, but, you know, it's a real privilege and it's a gift. Uh, and I believe as an educator, our actions have the capacity to leave an echo in eternity. And when education chose me, it became apparent that, that I had assumed the responsibility of this kind of social imperative to act in the best interest of young people. And uh, that weighs heavy. You know, there's a privilege and price that comes with that. But we should never forget that each young person in our care is home to a unique life. And I'm therefore called into this place of supporting each young person in my care and the adults that support them in helping both the adults and the young people kind of discover their in inherent possibility. So I kind of look to this idea of making a difference being an act, a human act of giving, and that through generosity, love and kindness, um, they're not kind of impulsive reactions. They're, they're, they're kind of required through a profound consciousness and a concern for the other. And, um, and I feel that this gift of gratitude for the other and love comes back to you in return when you give it out. Um, it's a little utopian there, I suppose, at the end, but, uh, you know, we all got to have ideals. What about you, Ben? What's your passion? <laughs> That's a, a, a fantastic um, uh, explanation of where you're coming from. Uh, and, and to answer your, your question and, you know, throwing me, my, my passion right now is, uh, is you know, I, I'm just, I'm also a curious person. I, I, I eat and drink all kinds of different ideas and try to combine them together. And that's really what gets me up in the morning. Uh, I absolutely love this idea of dissolving into uh, into the, the into the world, and, and by that I mean this idea of uh, the, the drop in the ocean and being becoming part of the ocean. I don't know if that's my passion, but I think it's it's just like you say, it's an aspiration, an aspiration that would make if everyone uh, was able to accomplish this across species, then we would we would probably find find a paradise on Earth. Uh, but these are also things when you have aspirations, you try to get to. And, and, you know, and, and, and there are goals that you don't necessarily, you, you can't get there, but, but you just work and work and work and try hard and try hard. And, and, and that's my motivation. That's my passion. I think there's something really powerful in the intent though, right? There's something really powerful in that because the, the intent is to inspire and radiate hope. That's the intent. And, and in a world that often sometimes feels broken or a world that often feels a little kind of uh, individualistic at times or even nationalistic at times, uh, and less about the other. 
the more people I feel that, that have a consciousness around our people, our place, our planet, that has an intention of hope, I think that's a pretty powerful starting point. Absolutely. And, and if somebody were to ask me what the meaning of life is, I would say uh, always trying to improve. Now, now that involves a progression, a linearity. I get that. But always trying to at least live to your full potential, just like you're saying. And those are very much regenerative terms, right? I mean, we, we, you didn't bring up the word regeneration, but, but this idea of building capacity. Everybody has unique journey. This idea of essence, this idea of, of love, of, of, of working with another to become one. It's, it's all part of, of, of the concept of regeneration and is incredibly powerful. And in my mind, one of the most sophisticated forms of thinking and feeling and social consciousness possible uh, in, in the history of, of consciousness, really. Continue to, to um, be in awe of our natural environment. And if someone did this kind of little exercise where they went to the same place each season, and they would see the transformation of that environment in each of our four seasons uh, and how it rejuvenates every single time, irrespective of what kind of adversity is thrown at it. Us as humans are really no different. I mean, our, our growth and our progress has because we're, we are aspirational and people of, of endeavour, but it's also because of our own regeneration, our own evolution. Evolution, you know, um, so I'd say, well, it's because of science, we, we can live longer and, and you know, uh, and, and, and so on. But the reality is that we're part of this, this world that keeps reinventing itself and reimagining itself, while at the same time, there are some beautiful things that seem like they're there forever that you want to want to hold on to uh, and, and, and those and cherish as well. So I love that word re regeneration. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and going on this, this idea of words, I, I generally get caught up with words and, and they're very dangerous things. You bring up the word assessment, curriculum, and all, and they're very dangerous, even democracy, freedom, because we, we may or may not have a common understanding. One of the things we do on this podcast is ask the same question to everyone, which is, how do you define learning? Uh, thinking that that's the basis and we try to get a common understanding. I'm going to throw this at you. How do you define learning? Okay. Uh, from my perspective... I would define learning as a transformative process for the acquisition and application of knowledge, skills, dispositions, and habits through what I call a pedagogy of encounter with study, with experience, or with being taught. A transformative process that is forever continual and always evolving as we grow, as we achieve, and as we change. A transformative process filled with reflective opportunities to unlock our inherent possibility, making sense of self place, planet, and the other. The key word here that I'm picking up from my perspective, listening to this, to this rich, rich idea of, of a feeling, sensing, and experience, but the word I'm saying is transformation, right? This eternal transformation, this eternal becoming, uh, becoming who we are, um, uh, as, as Nietzsche would say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I talk about this all the time and I, with, with staff that I, that we support in schools, now and, and even in the past and, and students and, and young people in the care and, and now for, former students who've got businesses that we still continue to have contact with. I talk about this notion of encounter because every encounter that we have, whether it's with self, whether it's with place, whether it's with planet or the other, is an exchange. And in that exchange, something happens. Sometimes that exchange is enlightenment Sometimes that exchange can be disappointment or frustration or anger. 
Um, sometimes that exchange can be that wonder and awe moment where, you know, that, that clear breakthrough happens where the penny drops and, and we get clarity around this next step, whatever that is. And that's the transformative part of, of this notion of a pedagogy of encounter. You know, we just spoke a moment ago about regeneration and, and there's a constant transformation that's going, that's going on, you know, uh, in, in our natural world. And um, we can't live and exist as if we're separate to it. You know, we, we are intrinsically part of it. And so any chance that we can engage in a transformative process of encounter, uh, I believe provides real opportunity for us to unlock more about our inherent, our inherent possibility as an individual and as a collective. I love this idea. I mean, the idea of, 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 of encounter and transformation brings in two bodies, an interaction really is what it is. So without saying two bodies, because I don't want to do dualism here, but, but it's an interaction between two holes that leads to a process. It's dialectical in nature. I'm going to kind of get on the granular part and maybe look at some of the mechanisms of the current meta-narrative in schools, which is about somebody gives you something and you got your, your, your head filled with content, skills, dispositions, whatever it is. And then from an assessment point of view or, or how sometimes learning is, is thought of, it, it's a very singular task. Uh, we go through something and experience, even if we go in the woods, and then I'm testing you or assessing you or figuring out how you exist as an individual. But if, if learning is a pedagogy of encounters and a transformation, it seems difficult to, to, to separate the individual, to, 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 to atomize us from, from that overall experience because it can't happen without the encounter. What are your thoughts on this? And it's a big question. I get it, but I just want to get more of your, of your you know, thinking. We we could we could supplement the word encounter with the word relationship, right? It, it's it's really one in the same. And I, and I love how you, you just shared that. You know those two entities there too. So much of what it is we do in in mainstream schooling is fundamentally about measuring productivity. Not enough of it is about measuring significance. And that's the difference here that I'm trying to advocate for. If we approached an idea of a pedagogy of encounter, which is made up of things like care, connection, culture, community, um, courage and, and, and courageousness, if we, if we were to embrace that type of pedagogy of encounter, maybe we would stop measuring the things that really don't define an individual in a holistic way. It only measures a moment in time or an element of that person. But if we started focusing on how we can support young people through reflective opportunities and learning opportunities that allow them to encounter more about themselves, about place, about planet and the other, what impact can we have socially, culturally and environmentally that is significant? And I'm not just talking about you know, let's, let's create a schools where we've just got a whole series of social entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. That's not, that's not my goal here. However, that kind of mindset is quite of an entrepreneur is about having a problem that's presented, a wicked problem, and wrestling with it to try and find a solution that's amicable for self and place, the planet and the other, ideally, right? Um, even, even major corporations are starting to realise that it can't be just about profit and loss statements anymore, which is always about productivity. 
Why has corporate social responsibility become such a powerful thing across the world in major corporations? Now, some might be cynical and say it's simply a powerful marketing tool. Look at us, we're so woke, right? Or is this a legitimate thing that these people are doing? And I would, I would I'd prefer to err on the side of love, right? The position of hope. I don't want to live a life thinking of fear, you know, and, and being cynical about things. I want to operate from this, this, this position that uh, uh, we are aspirational about tomorrow and that we want to share that. And we're seeing more and more companies uh, spread their wealth uh, in, in organisations and communities where perhaps governments have failed us, where churches maybe have failed us, or other institutions in the past that would have taken responsibility in that space have failed us, you know? We, we see great movements across this planet right now of not-for-profit organisations about the environment. We see great movements around Black Lives Matter. We see great movements around gender equity. These movements have been created from people at a grassroots level who have said, we've had enough. How can we ensure our, our kind of fraternal humanism is about significance, not productivity? It, if we created a learning ecosystem that was this kind of integration of in-person, online, in-context, in-country, this notion of anywhere, anytime learning opportunity, ensuring that the whole world is a classroom, uh, I just wonder what we could actually really achieve because learning is fluid, you know, and, and we've got to really have a deep appreciation for that. And the way I look at it is that we can no longer kind of delay the importance of things like online learning or in-context learning uh, or in-country learning as being pivotal to the future of learning um, or, or, or what it needs to look like beyond the classroom. You know, um, anyone that thinks that learning only occurs, you know, uh, in, in that between the, the beginning of the day and the end of the day in a school, you know, is absolutely kidding themselves, right? I mean, COVID has smashed that out of the park, right? It, it, it's taught us uh, that, that that's no longer uh, really relevant. We can do it in different ways, but do we have the courage to do it in different ways? You know, do we really have that courage to, to kind of master this, this huge shift, uh, you know, into a new place? This brings me to a question that I, I'm asking myself every day. Um, and, and you asked what my passions are. And, and unfortunately, answering this question is, is becoming an obsession, not a passion, is where does it start? So as a historian uh, who specializes in, in revolutions, which is incredibly boring to most people, but, but, to, but to me is interesting, um, revolutions start at the fringe. It's, it's, it is what an elite started, whoever it is, an intellectual elite, a wealth elite, a scientific elite, whatever, and then it, it goes back towards the core. And I think that the words that you're using, I mean, going from, from, um, from productivity to significance is a, a, a revolution of consciousness. It's a revolution, um, not necessarily in the way that we produce with machines, but in the way we interact with one another, the way our relationship with co consumption and production, uh, relationships, uh, everything, right? It's, it's, it's complete mentality shift. And, and, and on the one hand, we all have to do this together where does it start? We don't know, but but I, I grapple with this. Does it start at the core? Does it start on the fringes? That this kind of 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 of, uh, of of effort. What are your thoughts on this? And I particularly want to pick you up on what you said at the very beginning about unique journeys um, that schools and people have unique journeys. So so that to me is is very key. But what are your thoughts on this? Fringe or core or both? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. I actually don't feel that it needs to be an either or. I think it needs to be an and an end. 
you know, um, change would happen quicker if the people overseeing the system were open to the possibility of the change. There's no doubt about it because they're the ones that ultimately give permission, right? But you know what? We're the system. The people are the system. So it's about time we give ourselves permission uh, and, and stand up. Was Rosa Parks part of a system? You know, she made a stand that was transformational. And we could go through all of history where we have examples of an individual who made a decision. You know, to master this huge shift, I think we must change the way we perceive ourselves and our role in the world. Schools need to deliver a curriculum of the future, not, not just one fixated on history or the past. You know, schools need to teach students how to learn, unlearn and relearn, not just what to learn. The interdependence of character education, holistic wellness, um, competency, knowledge and skills, technical, human <clears throat> and digital are all crucial skills, you know. Developing a connection to, to real learning opportunities that foster and extend character, creativity, curiosity and challenge has got to be central to, to whether it's an individual championing this or whether it's a system championing this. You know, and, and I love how you touched upon before this notion of consciousness because a deep self-paced and intrinsic connection to a love of learning is about a consciousness. And, and by helping young people take the risk to enter into their kind of discomfort zone is having a consciousness of where they're at at any given time because they're all in, different. It's not a one-size-fits-all anymore. You know, we know so much about the young people in our care is actually negligent that we don't cater for that difference. Um, and, and how then do we help that young person develop their openness to themselves, to place and, and to the other? And the, the final thing I'll say on this, this particular question you've asked is this, you know, the world faces swift technology advances, shifts in global and economic power, demographic shifts, resource scarcity, the ongoing issue of biosecurity that we're all experiencing with a pandemic, and of course, climate change. Young people need the right mix of knowledge, skills, dispositions and habits to thrive in their future. And all those things are part of their future which are happening right now. I mean, the future of work is, is revolutionising as automation and artificial intelligence make up many manual or, or repetitive jobs obsolete. You know, organisations like the McKinsey you know, Global Institute are saying that robots will replace 80 million jobs by 2030. I mean, that's in eight years' time. You know, uh, the World Economic Forum even suggests the skills revolution can open up a raft of new opportunities. You know, so I suppose to your question... I feel it's almost time that all those stakeholders, whether it's the individual at, on the ground level who might feel restricted, but really is the system, or the people at the top of the system, our politicians, our school leaders, uh, our policymakers, if they become conscious of this new world, therefore they then have a responsibility to shepherd everyone to a post-pandemic next or new or as I prefer a better normal you know one that recognizes that we need a new social contract that reimagines education and society that is deeply human-centered that is highly inclusive that is tech enriched that is people place planet conscious and is intentionally purposeful when it comes to understanding the value of our collective uh, uh, humanism, not our individual humanism. 
I'm going to pick you up on this one and maybe even think about like even a, a, a farther horizon, which is our collective as one of the species on the planet. So not just human centered, but biocentered as, as life. Uh, and, and maybe this idea that, you know, we are nested holes as a species, but we're part of a bigger thing. And, and that would follow through as well. I think for far too long now, and the devastation and the impact of climate change is the, is the perfect example of this. For far too long now, too many humans have been living in this world as if they were separate to it, you know, the planet. Um, and hence why I touched upon there that, yes, I, I, I know I'm, I'm talking about this deep, deeply human-centred approach, but I suppose my, my advocation in that space is about a consciousness of the other, hence why I would include people, place and planet in that consciousness mix. You know, what's your local context? Every context is different. Uh, how, how am I being very conscious about the needs of the place in this local or regional area? But then how can I raise my eyes and understand my ethical responsibility as a global citizen to each other, uh, uh, future economies, uh, the sustainability of our planet, uh, the sustainability of our species and other species? That's the intentionally purposeful part, you know? Um, Everything comes down to if we accept the notion of a pedagogy of encounter, that is about this deep consciousness with the relationship that we have with ourselves, with our place, with our planet, and with the other. And I know that's starting to sound a little repetitive, but I'm, I'm, I'm being very intentional with that language. And I don't want to be, uh, and, and I know that language can trip us up sometimes, but I just feel. We're kind of aimlessly going about it and making a lot of promises, but we're delivering the atlas, you know? We promise the world, but deliver the atlas. And, uh, and it's time, I feel, that we have to sit down with people who are white, black, uh, different religious uh, um, uh, um, groups, uh, different sexual orientations, different ethnicities, races, uh, different abilities, and so on. And we have to be open to everyone's possibility. Will solutions maybe take longer? Sure, of course they will but I'm, I'm fairly confident that it's going to yield a greater outcome, you know, where more people are, uh, are at that table. And, and if we're intentional about it, uh, I, I would look forward to that, that type of encounter because I think the relationships will be rich, they'll be meaningful, uh, they'll be built on the speed of trust. Uh, and every time we go to do something, we would have a consciousness about what we're about to do because we're so much more informed about the impact about what we're about to do. And, and when you when you bring up people, place, planet, and the other, I, I, at the end of the day, it's the same thing, right? As part of a living yeah, yeah. system, it's the same thing. So so understanding it as nodes, and, and, and going back to another word that you use, love. Love for these things beyond ourselves is is something that, that could that is so incredibly transformative as a collective. It really resonates with me. Um, and again, going back to the idea of unique journey, that it's not about making everybody the same. It's about ourselves living to our own essence and building capacity in people, place, planet, and the other for their essence as well. Yeah. You know, at a school for tomorrow, we refer, we don't refer to them as schools. We like to refer to them either as learning communities or learning ecosystems. It comes back to this kind of regeneration, right? Um, We've got to park the ego and we've got to amp up the ecosystem. And, and, and you're absolutely right. All of those things that I keep mentioning, self, place, planet, and the other 
is part of one ecosystem. But for far too long, we've been, we've been operating in silos. And that's, how, that's the construct of an industrial age school model too, right? It's all in silos. It's all in discrete subjects. Uh, and it's got to be delivered a particular way. This one size fits all model. And, and it's been broken for quite some time. And there are many young people who are, who are missing out on real opportunities uh, uh, to, to flourish. You know, I'm a visual arts teacher and a, and a design teacher all my career. So I'm a little biased about the value of something like a design thinking process, right? Um, but if we adopted a design thinking process where we start from this position of empathy, where we enter then into a dialogue with our client or with the, with the planet or with, with someone else or the place, whichever, whatever we're going to be creating a wicked solution to, we're developing a deep understanding and, a, and, a, and an empathy for a context that is foreign to us ordinarily, or we don't necessarily have all the knowledge. Then we move to the next step of that process where we're then defining that. We're defining it by doing more research and, and deeper understanding and coming up with a brief that, that ultimately it's almost like a social contract. Right? And then we move into the iteration phase where it's trial and error in a controlled way where you can fail, where you can make mistakes, but it's iteration after iteration after iteration, involving lots of people in the dialogue, testing it and trialing. And then we get to a prototype stage where we're really testing it, you know, trialing it, piling it uh, before it becomes real. And then, we, and then we've got another testing phase on, on, on top of that. And then we go, we go to market, so to speak. And, and we use a lot of that kind of protocol of divergent thinking with a lot of our schools and our clients, even for their strategic planning. You know, and that first step is, well, whose voice is missing at the table? Are the, have the parents had a say? Have the, have the young people had a say? Is the local, has the local community had a say? Have the teachers had a say? You know, um, had, had, you know how, do we, how do we get the community involved in that first step of that design thinking process so that we get ultimately rich outcomes that are catering for more individuals from a consciousness of encounter as opposed to productivity this this is this is leaner this is more uh, smarter it's more cost effective because that's how we're going to do it well that's how we've done it for a long time and look what we've done to our planet because of that you know um, and 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 so it, it's time that we just have to open our eyes to the possibility of of you know so much more uh, one thing i'll share with you ben is in in december 2021 the Australian National Skills Commission, they released this report and the report was called The State of Australian Skills 2021 Now and Into the Future. And it offered us markers to help inform the development of education in Australia and probably across the globe. And the biggest lesson about the future of work is that technological change is not looming over, over a distant horizon. It's already here, you know, and, and many in education are already late like we are with how we're gonna tackle the climate. You know, uh, how, how are we going to bridge the gap between gender and equity? You know, how are we going to uh, close the gap when it comes to uh, indigenous peoples of different parts of the world and, and show them the due respect that they deserve and, and celebrate their rich history instead of denouncing it? You know, um, we know that the world has changed and is in constant state of flux. When are we going to start realizing that it now is an opportunity for this kind of reset? It's a real opportunity for us to come together. And look, 
I'm a little impatient then, you know. <laughs> my, my, my response to when you question about how, how fast should this happen, who should be doing it, would be, you know, we need a new social contract and we need it now. But I know I'm also realistic and I understand that change, particularly for many people in schools and society, can be very confronting. And that in education, perhaps what we require is an incremental evolution, not a revolution. Because I don't want to break people, you know. Uh, I, I think there's enough volatility, uncertainty in the world. You don't want to really throw them even more. But we desperately need an evolution. And I'm with you as well about my impatience, about the idea of seeing this as an opportunity, about thinking that staying the same is there, there's a certainty that it will lead us into a wall because that's the direction we're in. I can't see going anywhere else. I, I'm wondering here about this idea of revolution and evolution and wondering whether it can be both. Going back, and I'm going to pick on this idea of unique journey because it really resonates with me, that Every school, and this again goes back to your idea of context, every school is in a local context. Every school has its own uh, essence, its own people, the, the, the people that make it, its own culture. Would it be possible to not say, again, one size fits all for change, but take people where they are at the point uh, of, of, of what they're ready for? So, so the uh, international school of X uh, might be very conservative doing, you know, uh, uh, AP tests and so forth. And, and I'm using international context here. A and they might be on the conservative side. And maybe any kind of movement uh, can be seen as a positive so long as it, as it allows people to thrive. Whereas another school, uh, another local learning ecosystem might be ready for something more revolutionary. And so we let people go based on their essence rather than saying, you know, well, it all has to be this way. It all has to be that way. And maybe that would mitigate the fear and also allow for those who are ready to go faster, go faster. And that's the only way I'm trying to resolve this in my head about fringe and core is actually everybody needs to do what they need to do. Yeah, I really love what you're sharing here. And, and I think this wrestling that you're demonstrating to the listeners is one that I, I, I have wrestled with myself for a very long time. You know, um, do we all do it or, or not? And then I come back to this notion that Really good learning, I'm gonna use this, this particular um, example. Really good learning occurs when we allow young people to access learning opportunities from where they're at. So I might have a young, I might have 25 young people in my class and I might have three or four young people in there who've got stay nines of three or below when it comes to literacy or numeracy. And then I'll have others I might have three or four young people in that class that have got stain lines of nine in literacy and numeracy. And then I might have, you know, the bulk of my class spread across stain lines of four, five, six, and seven. So I've got this spectrum in my class. They're, they're, unfortunately, they're put together by the year level, right? Because that's the industrial model. But if we provided learning opportunities for each young person that was personalised for them to access it where they're at, it would be no different for a school community in the example uh, what you were just sharing in your wrestling. If we meet that school community where it's at and we give them access to, some, to, to growth opportunities that perhaps is just an increment above from where they are, I feel that would be less threatening and it would still allow them to hold on to those enduring traditions that they feel is important but at the same time, give them an opportunity to test the waters, to step that, that one step forward and see what's possible. It's no different for me when I go into then a community whose appetite 
and, and where they're at at that particular point is maybe further along on that, on that development journey. So their appetite is, well, why don't we help them access learning not only where they're at, but maybe three or four steps ahead. But let them decide, right? You know, like, like, a, like a really good learning rubric would have a learning progression of multiple entry points. So you could have the same task, but you would then nuance that task to allow a young person access to learning where they're at. They might enter it at a novice level. They might enter it at a competent level. They might enter it at this innovator level. They could all be 14 years old, but they're going to enter it at different points because their life experiences are different, their circumstances are different, and so on, and their cognitive ability is different. That doesn't mean one should have greater value over the other. But if we can stretch each, each of them, whether you're flying or whether you're not, incrementally, uh, I feel that the, the change would be less threatened. However, there needs to be a change agenda. Like we can't ignore that any longer, you know? Uh, we have to be open, open to it, you know? Uh, before I mentioned this National Skills Commission report, um, and, and you know, what, what it mentioned is that it illustrates that people need the right mix of technical knowledge and, and human and, and digital skills to thrive. And we know that literacy and numeracy will continue to be important building blocks, but they're no longer sufficient to foster thoughtful, productive, connected, conscious, inventive and ethical global citizens. No more. You know, I said this before, as routine manual and administrative activities are increasingly automated, Jobs will require higher levels of care, computing, cognition, and communication skills. You know, so school leaders will, will need skills that, that are not easily replicated by machines, such as creativity and problem solving or, or adaptability or ethical awareness and social and cultural awareness, emotional self-regulation, teamwork, critical thinking, you know, all these things where, where we need to shift the emphasis of what it is that we're doing within our schools. And how can we help young people step into that space of permission where, where there's a degree of self-determination happening, where there's, where there's an increased uh, position of, of, of personalization? And how do we then empower the educators to realize that they still have value because schools still have value? You know, the, the, the social exchange that goes on in the school, the encounter that goes on in school brings enormous value to young people and the adults in their lives. But how can we, how can we continue to challenge a, a system in a world that now has evolved and keeps evolving and challenge a system to continue to be fluid and adaptive as it demonstrated these last two years. I mean, what education did is quite remarkable. I mean, it shifted an entire delivery model to a completely different way of doing it, you know? So it's, it's not, not, no practice and no training, right? And, and so a lot of it was like building the plane while we're flying it, you know? And, but we did it. And can I tell you, you know, I'm, I know I'm biased. I think teachers are remarkable, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll never be dissuaded otherwise. And they did it. They did it under duress. They did it while they stayed at home taking care of their own families. Some of their own family members impacted by the pandemic. Some of their own families impacted by losing jobs uh, and, and livelihoods. Um, uh, they, they did it where they might've had the only one device in the home and others had to miss out, but they did it because they're selfless and they genuinely care about the young people in, in in their schools um, and in their classrooms. And they did it and they found a way. And, and I feel that what I witnessed during that time also was this collective sharing of ideas of how to do it. 
you know, it was, there, there was no discrimination. Everyone was just sharing how you could do different ways of delivering this for primary school age children, for, for high school age children, for tertiary and so on. And that, that kind of collectivism was really powerful to witness that we weren't doing it alone. I'm just concerned that now, now that this, as this disease moves away and we, we, we migrate back to our on-campus paradigm, we might start forgetting about some of those wonderful things that we've learned and, and some of those wonderful encounters of connection that we built uh, you know, with, with others across the globe in support of this new delivery model. Um, but I remain optimistic, Ben. Such, such powerful thoughts. And, and what it makes me think is that maybe uh, the first thing I thought was this tension between we, we have to have an agenda of change, but everybody could go at their own pace or at the right place. But maybe it's not a tension. Maybe, maybe it's, it's complementary forces where uh, rather than doing the billiard ball model where we try to get every ball in a pocket with a cue stick, it's, it's more like the, the centers, the, the yeah, centers is not a wrong word, but maybe these, the, these nodes of gravity where people change and then we're attracted. So if, if you're doing something that's really powerful, I get swept up in that. I get pulled in and we work together. And, and, and maybe somebody's a little bit further out and maybe not quite in our gravitational field, but eventually it comes together. Maybe that's, that's what it might look like. You know, from my perspective is the truth is that many in education understand this new paradigm for today, to, for tomorrow's world because it's happening right now. Yet the reality is the pace of change does not complement this kind of new emphasis that we're talking about here. Children born in the first quarter of the 21st century or the 22nd century <laughs> um, must not become the collateral damage of a new world environment because we fail to reimagine education or schooling or society. It's just simply unacceptable from my perspective. You know, we're at a tipping point. We're at the precipice of transformation. Yeah, and we have a responsibility to help our COVID children to make something of it, their future for themselves, for the places they live and work in for the planet and for our collective humanity. And from my perspective is that it's just time. It's time that we, we, we call for an educational evolution, a new social contract, one, one that, that repairs past injustices while enhancing our collective capacity to act for a more sustainable and just future. Um, and we're, and, and we're, we're already late to it, mate. We've got to start now. <laughs> I, Jordan, I feel like I could speak to you for, for a long, long time. So this is our first conversation. I hope it's not the last because it's, um, uh, I really resonate with so much what you say. Thank you so much for being on, 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 the, on the podcast. I'm going to ask you just a, uh, one quick question that's kind of got two parts. Uh, what's up next for you and how do people get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. So um, throughout 2022, we, uh, myself and our partners and our associates are going to continue to work with uh, close to over 100 schools across the globe. We've got school clients in uh, South Africa, um, uh, Europe, North America, uh, Asia, Australia and New Zealand. And uh, we're going to continue to work with them in building their understanding and consciousness about their own strategic development, their own educational goals around curriculum design, uh, innovation and entrepreneurial thinking. And so people can get hold of me via www. There was a lot of W's in there, but there's only three really. Uh, .aschoolfortomorrow.com if they're interested in, in learning a little bit more about the work that, that we do as a collective uh, from A School for Tomorrow. Uh, also, you can get in touch with me via LinkedIn. Um, you know, Adriana Depardo is really simple or, or at Adriana Depardo on Twitter. 
Um, and of course, I'm hoping that all of your wonderful listeners uh, around coconut thinking are going to also subscribe and listen to the Game Changers podcast, uh, which you can hear on any platform like Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you for listening. You can check out our blog, resources, other podcast episodes on www.coconut-thinking.design and, of course, your favorite podcasting channels. You can also check out our articles on Intrepid Ed News. That's www.intrepidednews.com. We are, of course, in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News every week. We've got articles up there, uh, and there are us also other articles from some fabulous educators and uh, practitioners and thought leaders on the platform, and that's www.intrepidednews.com. Looking forward to another episode coming soon. In the meantime, if you have any comments, questions, again, check out our blog, www.coconut-thinking.design, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.